listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning, I want to invite you in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. It's where we're going to be today. We're going to begin, pick up in verse 9. And we're going to go through verse 20, but today is kind of, I would call it Paul's exclamation point. You go back to chapter 1, and, and Paul gives his first indictment, his first verdict, and it goes to the Gentiles, those outside of God's people. And he says, even though you're not one of my chosen people of Israel, that you had revelation that you ignored, and you exchanged that truth for idols. Well, then he goes after those that are then judging those Gentiles. He says, your problem is you're doing the same thing they're doing, even worse. Well, then he went after the religious Jews, those that were prideful, arrogant. They were hypocrites. They had become what they feared the most. They became blasphemers. Well, then last week was another group of Jews, and I would call them the justifying Jews. They had all the advantages. They were God's people. They had God's word. But the problem was, over and over, they kept justifying or trying to justify their sins. And pretty much everybody that's listening or having these, word, these letters read to all the churches of Rome, he's pretty much included everybody. But there is one more indictment. There is one more verdict that he must give. But it's not just to the Gentiles, it's not to just those that are judging the Gentiles, it's not just to those that are trying to justify their actions, and it's not just the religious Jews. The indictment, the verdict today, Paul is going to show without any hesitation, it is absolutely everyone. He's going to put everybody this morning on even playing ground. But then we've been asking, why does Paul spend three Chapters. I keep thinking we're going to get to some good news, and we will, I promise. But three chapters harboring over and over and over again about your sin and guilt, your sin and guilt, your sin and guilt. I believe because for someone to really hear the gospel, to truly believe it, they must first have heard the gavel come crushing down at their time at judgment, and all they know is guilty. And so no matter who we are, we are to find ourselves in the first three chapters of Romans. No matter who we are, where we find ourselves, how we grew up, whatever the situation might be, we are to see ourselves in the first three chapters because we all need chapter four. So church this morning is a sign of honor and reverence. I would love to ask you if you can stand once again for the reading of God's word. We are going to pick up, I will read for us, beginning in verse 9. Paul begins, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, but both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat, it's an open grave. 
They use their lips to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if you have ears to hear, please hear the word of God this morning. You may be seated. So this morning, what Paul has just done is really lay out a foundational doctrine for the church. If you go to Bethel's website, we have eight essential doctrines to become a member. These are the eight essentials that that you stand behind, that you affirm. And number four is the idea of man's need. I would call it our depravity. In fact, if you haven't been to the website in a while, uh, we've put together a two to three minute video on each doctrine of the eight essentials. I challenge you, encourage you to go and listen to those short videos because today we're going to talk about the doctrine of total depravity. Well, then what is that? It simply means this, that sin has affected absolutely everything about us. It affects our minds, our wills, our hearts, our bodies. Every dimension of your life that you are in is affected and is under the weight of sin. And at the heart of it all, the center of it all, is your sinful heart and my sinful heart. In fact, it's so bad that Jeremiah tells us in chapter 17 that our heart is more wicked than we could ever conceive. In fact, no one, no one likes to Think about how evil we are, but we are far worse than we could ever imagine. And I read something this week that helped put it in perspective. In fact, it's something that happened in my lifetime. I can vaguely remember a lot of this. And then when I was actually in that country, I even got to see the effects uh, years and years later. Well, if your mind can go back far enough to 1984, it was in the month of April, there was a disaster that the world had never experienced before. It was a day that a number four reactor spewed uh, radioactive materials into the air in Ukraine. And you know it as the idea or the title of the Chernobyl disaster. I can remember hearing a lot about this, so then I began reading even more this week, and it said that when that happened, it was rated at the highest level possible of a disaster at a number seven. In fact, it was considered the worst nuclear disaster in world history. And it polluted everything. Not just the air, it polluted the water, the soil, all the people that were around it. Everything was infected by radioactive waste. In fact, there's actually no way of really knowing um, how many people are affected by this. And years later, the effects that happened. I spent some time in an orphanage over there. And the number of babies that were dealing with birth defects. And everyone related back to this time. The number of abortions skyrocketed during this time. Because women were afraid of the effects of this disaster. 
fact, in 2000, 16 years later, the best estimate is almost 4 million people receiving government benefits related to Chernobyl. Over 5% of their entire population. But what's interesting and even relevant today is that 40 years before that disaster, a famous world scientist said something. In fact, he was actually one of the scientists that was kind of somewhat involved in promoting the development of the first nuclear weapons, and he gave an interview to the New York Times. In fact, it was actually just a few months after the United States destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki with atomic bombs using uranium and plutonium. And it was Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein said it is easier. It is easier to denature plutonium than it is to denature the evil spirit of man. Well, not being too intelligent, I had to go look up that word. So this is what it means. It means nurturing, it means to nurturing, to take plutonium and altering it so that it cannot be used in nuclear devices to bring it under control, rendering it harmless. So then I began thinking what it has taken since 1984, the time and money and effort that has gone in to cleaning up this disaster. I found some numbers that it said more than 500,000 people have already worked on the cleanup. And they estimate that it will take many more people over 100 more years. At a final cost of excess of $70 billion. Yet Einstein said that denaturing plutonium is nothing compared to what it takes to deal with the evil spirit of man to render it harmless. So Paul, this is why he's doing this. He's putting the exclamation point on this section. Here's what we're going to see today. We are far worse than we could ever imagine. But still not as bad as we could be. So look back at verse 9. It begins by saying, the Jews asking a question whether writing in letters are rhetorical. He says, well, what then, Paul? What then, are we Jews any better off? Meaning our advantages, we were God's chosen people. We had your word brought to us. The mark of circumcision to set us apart. Are we better off? And Paul says, no, not in any way. What Paul is saying is that God doesn't show a favoritism. He doesn't show favorites to people when it comes to his judgment. He doesn't have this thing of preferential treatment. And Paul is wanting to level the playing ground. And so he explains why. For we have already charged that all, notice not some, not a few, all, both Jews and Greeks, meaning anyone not a Jew, are under sin. Paul says everyone, doesn't matter where you come from or how old you are or what you might do, all are charged. And then he says, (coughs) under something. And Paul chooses his words carefully. (coughs) Notice Paul doesn't say, because you sin, or because you have sins that you deal with. He says you are under singular sin. And he chooses this word under really carefully. It's a, a legal term. You would use this to describe somebody that was either controlled 
or under the authority of, or you could even say a citizen of somewhere else. You were underneath that person or that thing. So Paul is saying, (coughs) it's not just that we sin, and it's not just that you sin. It means that you are controlled by, and you are ruled by, you are a citizen of sin. And the problem is, there isn't anything we can do to solve this problem. And you can try your hardest, I can do my best, and it will never be enough to solve this problem. It will always be under the rule of sin. It will control our hearts, it will control our minds, and it will control our wheels. And so I keep expecting, okay, Paul, man, you got us. We understand. Could you at least give us some good news? But not yet. In fact, what he's about to do is really amazing. He's about to give the biggest indictment, I believe, in Scripture about the total depravity of man. And he is going to quote over six Old Testament references. Because look at how it begins in verse 10. (coughs) As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. Suppose, once again, everybody is underneath the same judgment. Says no one is righteous. But just in case, just in case some are trying to kind of skirt around this, he says, but before you say anything, no, not one. So why would Paul have to state this in such a dramatic way? I think we would all understand, okay, no one's righteous, but he says, no, 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 you don't understand. No, not one. And I think it's because Paul understands the sinfulness of his own mind and own heart, including ours. Because we would like to look around when we hear something like this and go, okay, well, at least there's got to be a scale. There's got to be some curve that this thing is looked upon because it is easy to identify a lot of unrighteousness that is worse than me. And I'll be honest, I mean, I can turn on the news, I can read things that are happening and go, at least I'm not like that. I know I'm not perfect. I do some wrong things. I might say this or that, but at least... I mean, there's no way I'm as bad as that. I've worked really hard to, at certain things that I can't be all bad. I know there's some, I'm not perfect, we always say that, but man, to say that there is not any ounce of righteousness, because it's easy to see the horrible sins other people are committing. Crimes against others, especially children. And we go, well, that's unrighteousness. But does that really have to include me who's really trying here? So the argument might be this. Come on, Paul. Surely there are at least, there's, there's a little bit. I mean, I know, I'm not even asking for 25% here. I mean, man, 10%, surely you could find 10% righteousness in me. If you would just look hard enough. In fact, you say, man, you've never met my grandma. I mean, if there's anybody that's close to a saint, it's got to be her. I mean, she never said a bad word. She always kept a great house. She helped her neighbors. I mean, she went to church. She volunteered for this. She would take meals to different people. I mean, surely she's just at least a little righteous. But Paul says it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. Because it's a lot like this. Imagine somebody's going to swim from, I don't know, San Francisco to Hawaii. First one, horrible swimmer, can't swim at all. As soon as they get in over their head, boom, they drown. Then you take somebody, maybe they took a few lessons. They could kind of doggy paddle a little bit. 
Maybe they dog and paddle for about 60 to 100 feet. But they finally get out there and before long they drown. But the third one, the third one is this athletic, powerful, moves through the, the water, you know, like a fish. Olympic swimmer, well decorated, 30 miles in, they're still swimming. 40 miles in, they start struggling. 45, they start to sink. And at 50, they drowned. So is one more drowned than the other? The answer is no. It doesn't matter how far someone swam in the end, they all are just as dead as each other. And Paul says it's the same with righteousness. Everyone is equally lost, equally condemned to perish. So he says we're all under sin and no one is righteous enough. Even though some people seem more unrighteous and others seem more righteous than others, he says it is still not enough. So now Paul says something that has truly challenged me this week. And I have to admit, I think I saw this all wrong. And it wasn't, well, let me just show you. Look at verse 11. In verse 12. Verse 11 and 12. So no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So he says, no one understands, no one seeks, and all have turned aside. And so when he says, well, no one understands, I can easily understand that, at least I think I do. Meaning that, that no one is truly righteous. And I go, okay, at least I can wrap my mind around that. But then he says, no one understands. So it's not only do we not do enough righteousness, he says we don't even have the capacity to understand what that righteousness really is. That we fell on all accounts. Because being under sin affects not just our actions, but it hinders us from understanding. It affects our minds, our reason, our intellect. But then he says, no one seeks God. And do you see what Paul just said? No one seeks, no one searches for God. The people don't seek Him. But I hope you're thinking what I've been thinking. Because I think about things, I go, well, but there are verses, Paul. I mean, I think of like Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Or I go to Mark 7. It says, seek and you will find. But you have to remember who those are written to. Those were written to believers. In fact, he's speaking to his disciples. Oh, but then my favorite. If you ever grew up in old-timey religion, maybe a tent revival. Been to a few in my day. Uh, Revelation chapter 3. Somebody'd stand up, get to the end of the service. Say, so Jesus is standing at the door knocking. And they would quote it, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And if you'll just open that door. But you know who John is writing to? Who he's addressing? It's the church. And so what Paul has just said is that only believers, only believers have the capacity to seek God but outside of faith, outside of belief, no one seeks God. But I know what you're thinking because I was thinking the same thing. 
But there sure seem to be a lot of people who aren't Christians that are searching and seeking. And I, Paul, I know some. But if they are, that means Paul's wrong. Because Paul says that no one in their natural condition seeks God. You probably know people like I do. It sure seems like they're searching. And they're asking good questions. Seem to be asking things and searching for like meaning and, and purpose and, and a peace. Maybe even, man, I've just got this guilt. I know something's wrong and I need it relieved. And it sure seems like they're searching for the right things. So hear me. I think we do see people searching for great things like peace and meaning and purpose. But as Christians, as believers, we know that only God can give these. So I think what I've done and what other people do is that we jump to the conclusion and thinking, well, if they're searching for these great things, then they must be searching for God. But when reality, there's a lot of people that are searching only for the benefits that God can give, but they want them without God. They want things on their terms. I want all those good things, but I need to be able to decide kind of how this thing works out. And you are seeing it played out in full theater before us today, if you've ever heard the word deconstruction. Now, deconstruction is really just a fancy, or fancy way of taking a biblical word, which means apostasy. It's people that I have known, well-known pastors that have led major churches, worship leaders, Christian authors, and even this week, a friend of mine. They say they're deconstructing. What they're doing, they're renouncing their faith and their beliefs in Christ. But everyone will say, but I'm still searching. I'm still out there looking because I've tried this thing and it's not working. So I'm going to keep searching. I'm going to keep searching for something different that has more meaning and more purpose. And they're all saying I'm searching for a greater significance and, and more meaning in life because what I was doing, it wasn't working. But I'm searching. But in reality, I'm convinced that they really want what only God can give, but they want it without Him. They want it on their own terms. Because here's the truth. God doesn't play hide and seek. God is not someone that hides Himself and is only for those that are clever enough or good enough to go and find Him. He doesn't play hide and seek. He tells us it's not our task to search and find God. In fact, you see it all throughout the Bible from the Garden of Eden to Revelation. Because it describes the great God who is searching for and seeking to save those that are lost. God is the one that pursues. He is the one that is looking not for people searching for Him. He goes after the fugitives that are fleeing from Him. So if someone is truly searching, they're truly seeking, meaning they've got this desire in them to, to know God and to enjoy Him and to worship and appreciate and rejoice in God, it's not because they were really clever. It's not because they were more dedicated. It's not because they read some latest book. It's not that they were lucky enough to find the right thing that unlocked this mystery and found God. It is only if God is the one that sought them first. If anyone is truly searching, it is only that God has first drawn them. So think about your journey to faith. Maybe five years ago, ten years ago, fifty years ago. I think here's what we need to realize. is that we did not seek Him out. He first had to draw us. 
We decide to put our faith in him only because he first decided to give us the faith to believe. And I'm going to show you in a little bit why that is the best news possible. Well, then Paul gives one of the most detailed indictments, I believe, in all of Scripture. Just in case there was any misunderstanding, Paul is going to lay it out. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I can't think of a more detailed list of our depravity. He says your throat, it's an open grave. It's a picture of death. It's an unsealed grave. Your tongue, it deceives. It lies. It creates deception. Your lips hold a poison of an asp, the most deadly snake that they knew. Your mouth, it's so full, there's not even more room. It's so full of curses and bitterness. Your feet, yeah, they're swift. They're swift in shedding blood. In the past, when you look back, there is nothing but ruin and misery. And do you see why? At the end of that verse... It's because there is no fear of God before their eyes. If you said under any sermon, usually what happens here is somebody would say, you know, but it's not this kind of, oh, frightened, kind of afraid. That it's kind of this awe, this reverence. But then I heard Tony Evans this week. He says, I think it's actually both. I think there is a fright in a scaredness. It should be a trembling that we are in the presence of someone far greater than we could ever imagine. It is also an awe or a reverence, meaning there is a love, an honoring of someone that you'd want to do nothing to offend them. And when you put these two together, it creates a sense that that is someone that I need to take seriously. And that's the problem. They weren't taking him seriously, and all these things happened. But I don't know, for me, I read this list, and I can almost hear the people that are hearing this read over them all about Rome kind of thinking the same thing. Okay, Paul, I get it. But listen, I know I'm not perfect. You don't have to convince me of that. I've said some things I shouldn't have said, maybe even this morning. I've hurt some people's feelings. I know that. Man, I've torn down people with my words. I've caused problems in relationships with people. But can it, does it all really have to be all that bad or evil? Because, man, I can see evil in the evening news or in the social media. I mean, there are some things that are really bad. But I think this is precisely what Paul is getting at, why he gives such a detailed description that you and I, we are far worse than we could ever imagine. But we're still not as bad as we possibly could be. There will always be more evil that we are capable of. And it's only by God's restraining grace that I don't do more. But here's what is so powerful for me, looking about this over the last few weeks. Paul is not standing on kind of this high moral high ground, on this mountain and kind of casting down verdicts and indictments on all the lowly people. When Paul is going through this list, I think Paul is saying all of this is realizing 
that this was him. Because when you think back to Paul, Paul was doing the most righteous thing that he could think of. When everybody else is going about their business, when everybody else is kind of carrying on what's Paul doing, Paul is standing up and defending the Jewish faith. And he's going after people and he's protecting the purity and the sacredness of the temple. And he's going out and taking people that show a threat to the Jewish people in their faith. There was no one that was doing anything more righteous than Paul. But that's when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. But don't miss it. It's when God sought him. He was in no way, shape, or form out looking, trying to discover who God was in this. He thought he was on the right path until God showed up and sought him. And this is how we should see ourselves. So then Paul is going to take you forward. Paul's going to take us to a future event. It's in verses 19 and 20. After that indictment comes the last judgment. This is how it reads. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. and The whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And it is a picture of humanity before the divine judge. Those that are under the law, meaning everyone, that everybody's got a a form, a degree of revelation. But one day, everyone will stand before God and notice what we're doing. Notice what you'll be doing. You're standing absolutely silent. Your mouth is shut. Meaning on that day, in that moment, everyone is guilty. And nothing can be said to change that. When I stand before God and you stand before God, the indictment against us will be so clear and the evidence so overwhelming that it would be foolish to even suggest I have any ounce of innocence. Because we are far worse than we could ever imagine. And then he says the whole world will be held accountable. Every single person is put on even, equal playing field. So once again, why does Paul spend three chapters on this idea of the guilt and the sin of humanity? It's because Paul knows it is impossible for someone to truly hear the gospel until they have first heard the heaviness of the gavel come down and you know your only verdict is guilty. Because we are far worse than we could ever imagine. But we're still not as bad as we could be. But I do want to leave us with some hope this morning. Next week we'll get to dive into it. I promise, I keep saying that. We'll get to dive into it very deeply next week with Abraham. When I look at this, I want to show you some really great news in verse 20. He says, for by the works of the law, no one, No human being will be justified in his sight. I want you to know for us this morning, this is actually great news because sin affects everything about us. And that includes our works, even our very best works. 
that our best work on our very best day will never be enough to earn the amount of righteousness that is needed on that day. That we need something that is greater, more powerful to break our enslavement to sin. We need a greater power and a power that comes from outside us to break in and to set us free. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 that the gospel is the power of God to save. A power that is found in and only in the gospel. About what Jesus Christ actually did. That we don't find some solution by being lucky enough to be one of the few or being clever enough or, or good enough. Because God doesn't play hide and seek. It is found in a God who searches and seeks for us. So if you're a believer this morning, here's your hope. Your best works on your very best day will never be enough, mine included. We are far worse than you could ever imagine. And I want you to think, well, where's the good news? It's because in the last day, there is only one thing you need to be able to say. As you stand before God realizing that how where you were and that you are far more worse than you ever thought possible. When you stand before God, the all-knowing judge, all you have to do is point to the one standing next to him and say, I'm with him. And that's all I got. Because he's in me. If you're here searching, if you're here searching for God, listen, he is not hiding from you. There's not some secret that you've got to finally figure out and be one of the clever, lucky ones to unlock. If you're searching for him this morning, it's because he is searching for you and he will never stop searching. But for those that are still trying to strive and to earn God's approval and you're on that rotating day of maybe day will be better, maybe I can do enough. I want you to know you no longer have to keep striving to earn God's approval. Your best It'll never be enough. And that's okay. Your hope is to allow Christ to be the one to earn what you need. But there's also those that are looking for faith. And I know there's a lot out there. Well, faith is not this elusive treasure that you have to be lucky or clever enough to find. Scripture tells us to simply reach out and ask God for the faith to believe and the promise is, He is always faithful to give it. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.